Hello, everybody. This is Nirja Sankaran, here to welcome you back to the DNA Papers, a podcast series that aims to bring home the science of DNA by unpacking and illuminating the original research that went into the discovery of the substance and understanding its role in life. After detours in our previous two episodes to cellular genetics and microbiology, where DNA was scarcely mentioned, we return here in our fifth episode. And for the rest of the series, we'll be talking about the material, even if it isn't quite called DNA yet. Those following the series may remember that in episode two, we discussed the contributions of Albert Kossel, who in 1910 received the Nobel Prize in Physiology or Medicine for his discovery of the different nucleotide bases, A, T, G, and C, that make up the DNA molecule. Today's session will focus on the work of one of the many scientists mentored at one time or another in their career by Kossel. The person is Phoebus Levine, who, among other things, discovered the sugar components of the nucleic acids, the ribose in RNA and the deoxyribose of DNA. I have a quick word of explanation before I introduce our guests and leave the conversation in their capable charge. Today's episode deviates in many ways from the pattern established in our previous conversations. Most significantly, it is not about one or a few of Levine's papers on DNA per se. One reason for this is that Levine was amazingly prolific and over half a century produced hundreds of papers in both German and English titled in variations of the theme on on the nucleic acids, and it would be difficult to privilege some over the others and offer a fair assessment of his work. More intriguingly, however, not one of these papers contains the actual elaboration of the idea that Levine is probably best remembered or misremembered for today. Something called the tetranucleotide hypothesis often blamed for obstructing the realization of DNA's importance to life for decades. So paradoxically, and what would history of science be without its paradoxes? Today's episode is about a paper that never was. Rather than reveal anything more, I'll turn to introducing our guests. First up, I'd like to welcome back historian of science Panina Abiram, whose first history of science publication in 1978 was, as I mentioned last time, a review of A Century of DNA, one of the sources of inspiration for this entire series. The book was one of the first books to give Levine a fair representation in the DNA story, which is a fact that Panina made a special note of in her review. I'm very grateful to have her return to the series. Thank you for joining us, Panina. Thank you. Our next guest is Pedro Bernal, a professor of chemistry from Rollins College, Florida. Pedro developed a deep interest in the history and philosophy of science during his undergraduate years at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, where he also obtained his PhD in chemistry. Whenever and wherever possible, he attempts to incorporate these interests into his teaching and in writings about the value of history and philosophy of science in or for science education. Welcome, Pedro. I'm very pleased that you're joining us. Thanks for having me. 
Also returning to the series to pick up the threads of our previous conversation on DNA chemistry is Mark Larch, who's a working biochemist as well as a communicator of science at the University of Hull. I'm especially keen to hear his interpretation of Levine's misunderstood stance on the much maligned tetranucleotide hypothesis. Welcome back. Great to be here. Thank you very much. Well, welcome again, everyone, and thank you for joining this conversation on DNA chemistry. Now, usually I begin each podcast session by asking the guests to offer some detail about the content of the papers under discussion. But as I said, this episode does not focus on one or a few papers. So I'm going to open with a slightly different opening gambit. Why would you say that Levine is deserving of his own episode in a history of DNA? Panina, would you like to go first? Sure. He deserves a special episode because for three or four decades, ending with his death in 1940, certainly since 1909, he was the main, he and his lab were the main workers on DNA chemistry and the chemistry of its components. And this period, which includes the entire interwar period as well as time before World War I, is a very crucial period in the history of science in the 20th century. Whether we count from 1905 when he got the jobs that enabled him to do what he did, or 1910, we talk about three decades of being at the very center of, we should say, chemistry of natural products. And biochemistry less because his enzymatic work was very limited. But in terms of chemistry of natural products, which is the most complicated chemistry that exists, and those who majored in chemistry know that you study it only after you finish organic chemistry, analytical chemistry, and all the type of chemistry that exists because it is so complicated. And indeed, the nucleic acids of which DNA and RNA are the representatives in this session are very complicated chemically and to resolve their structure is the major achievement of Levine and his lab. Would Mark and Pedro like to add anything? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so I think the thing about Levine is, is and why he deserves his own episode, is just his, you know, he was so pro- prolific and so dedicated to the to the cause. He was held up as this, you know, champion of, 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 of nucleic acids. He, he, you know, published 700 papers throughout his career. He... Um, you know, he he worked in at the Rockefeller Institute on uh, right up to the day before he died. You know, in in at the age of seventy one. So you know, uh, is just so such a vast contribution to the field. Um, uh, and and absolutely, you can't have a story of DNA without without mentioning him. He defined so much of the chemistry, or discovered and and, and published so much of the chemistry that we're now so familiar with. Um, may I add a point, please? Sure. He was also important institutionally, which, you know, there was a time when historians of science were only interested in ideas. But 
since then, we are also interested in institutions. And the fact that he was among the founding members of the Rockefeller Institute, now Rockefeller University, means not only that he had a, a very good job, but de facto, he had unlimited resources. So I, I would say that whatever he and his lab achieved was the best that could have been achieved worldwide, because I don't know of a better uh, endowed institution in that area at that time. Only Lister in London and Pasteur in Paris were comparable. And I still think Rockefeller had more resources. But even if we compare with the other two, and the other two are more focused on infectious diseases and stuff like that, but complete freedom for basic science was very rare at the time. And he had unlimited resources. Even Simon Flexner, the director, if he uh, wanted to cut his budget, Levine put up resistance and the budget remained. So th this is really uh, a unique situation that all of us only dream of and <laughs> very few people achieve. So it's the top of the line in institutional term. Great. Thank you for that bit of information, Panina. Uh, Pedro, would you like to add anything at this point? Yes, I, I think Panina points to something that's really important. I, uh, if one looks at the descriptions of Levine, he might be referred to as um, as a um, Russian-American biochemist. I'm not sure that that's the best description for Levine. Levine, in, on my reading, was basically someone that thought of himself as a traditional organic chemist, and he was incredibly good at it. The achievements of Levine in figuring out the structures of the sugars and the publication of the 1935 structure of the nucleotides, etc., is just a major achievement for anybody, for any career. It's, it, it's an amazing uh, achievement. I'm not quite sure, to be honest, what is the reason for the fact that he's remembered, presumably, for something he got wrong. In my reading, I just don't see it. Everything that he did, essentially concluding with the structure that was published in 1935, uh, qualifies him as undoubtedly the preeminent chemist on nucleic acids, even though, and I'm taking my cues here from uh, uh, Hunter, who, who wrote a, a long article on him, only about 25% of Levine's papers were referring to nucleic acids. So... There is a huge amount of work that he did um, that s sort of never gets talked about a great deal. Uh, but in addition to his work in nucleic acids, he just did amazing chemistry in other areas as well. Um, may I, um, Nirja, point to a similarity and dissimilarity with another scientist? Because after all, we all try to solve the puzzle at the center of this session which is why, like Pedro said, and others, Grammy Hunter and others, if he wrote 700 papers and uh, did and solved the chemical structure of DNA and RNA, these are tremendous achievements for anybody. Why the only things that people want to remember is that due to 
ambiguous formulation. Some people thought that he had the wrong ideas, that uh, he disqualified DNA from being the genetic material, which is a very big uh, disaster, like one paper said, a scientific catastrophe. So I want to just make a brief comparison with Linus Pauling, whom you all know and must know. Linus Pauling solved 225 uh, structures, and uh, this is probably more than any other chemist. Some of them were amazing, like alpha helix of proteins are major, major achievements, and others are also important achievements, but of a more regular manner. But the great liners made a big flop with DNA structure by claiming that there are three strands, also that not being an acid but a salt, and all kinds of mistakes that it's impossible to clarify. But nobody says that Linus Pauling is remembered only for his paper of DNA, which is a disaster indeed. And nobody can understand how the best chemists or one of the best makes elementary mistakes that even two incompetents like Watson and Craig could spot. So there are uh, in- incomprehensible things, but what should really focus us is why this type of bizarre charge seems to stick in Levin's case and doesn't stick in Pauling's case. I think the answer partly there is, you know, is that, of course, Pauling's paper on the, the, the de- describe the DNA triple helix, etc., with the basis pointing out, you know, as you say, absolutely, absolute disaster. The amazing actually thing about that that always amazed me is that he completely ignored hydrogen bonding, which was, of course, the thing that he described. So he, he you know, in, but anyway, we're not talking about Pauling, are we? We're talking about... There is uh, nothing indeed. there but, that is not wrong. No, exactly. Yeah, great. That's a perfect way of putting it. So, um, so, but the, I think the, the difference is, of course, is that with, with Pauling, that that paper was, was very quickly corrected and it didn't, uh, you know, by, by Watson and Crick and so on. Um, and whereas, whereas Levine's, um, is is accused of holding back uh, DNA research by fundamentally not necessarily because of the tetranucleotide hypothesis, but because he didn't believe that DNA was the molecule of inheritance, and and um, and and that of course went on for so much longer, isn't it? I think if if Pauling's uh, the structure had persisted for a long time and had become the dogma, we would have a very different view of Pauling. But yeah, I think that's the fundamental difference, isn't it? Is how long the actually Levine supported the dogma that DNA and proteins were, and DNA wasn't the molecule of inheritance, and it's proteins that were responsible. Plus, if I may interject, going back to what I said in the beginning, there was a real paper. I mean, there was an actual paper from Pauling where he has all these spectacular mistakes, as you call them. Um, So one could start to disprove it. The thing with the tetranucleotide hypothesis is that it sort of came into being as something, you know, like Minerva. It's just there and it's attributed the fact that there are these repeating units of all four nucleotides is just attributed in retrospect almost to Levine 
When Levine mentions a tetranucleotide hypothesis himself in one of his papers, it really doesn't say that, does it? That there are the four repeating units. Because he didn't know at that time, they couldn't, uh, didn't have evidence for the order of in polymers. They didn't realize at that time, most polymers were had the same monomer. So it didn't matter uh, the order. That could be a polymer that the order is encoded. Nobody could, could think about it at that time. And even for proteins, the order of amino acids was discovered only, I think, in the 50s, which is relatively late. Uh, before, they didn't know that the order in, an, in a protein matters. It's not just uh, the composition. And chemistry was about primarily about composition and not about order. And, uh, you know, to blame somebody for something that was not done at that time, it's... Um, That's right. I mean, uh, you know, not not very helpful. I, I agree. I mean, you you look back through the, some of those papers, and and it's really difficult. You know, when I started looking back again, I was like, well, where did this spring from? This tetranucleotide hypothesis, and and you can see it sort of almost evolving from a diagram here, you know, which shows all the you know four nucleotides together, and a, another diagram, you know there and then the scientific community must have just sort of slowly um, come around to this idea and I suppose actually when you look at it it doesn't look unreasonable you know from, from their analytical data they, they look like there are these four bases in 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 um, equal amounts and so um, if you apply Occam's razor you know that the simplest hypothesis is probably true it's not an unreasonable conclusion to come to um, some of the more weirder things that emerge, like there's the ring diagram, which shows the four nucleotides, you know, looped together in a ring. Where did that actually come from? I may have um, overlooked the paper in there or couldn't find it, but maybe Pedro or um, Pinino, can you can you shed some light on that? I've never seen the actual paper where the circular structure is. The linear structures, uh, yeah, Hunter's article actually showed them in some detail, ending up with a 1935 structure, which is essentially correct. I've seen from Hunter's paper and, and, and others sort of the development of the structures that were published, I think starting in 1912 and concluding in 1935. Um, and they, of course, you know, are sort of improvements uh, responding to the chemical evidence that, that he's getting. So Penina talks about pollen, but pollen comes from a whole different tradition, right? Where we now have the benefit of being able to do sort of structures using x-rays and so on. And that's in the middle of the work among proteins and so on. Levine has essentially zero access to that kind of data. By the time it comes around, he's been dead a few years. And this is sort of just pure chemistry and putting things together based on the evidence that just comes from the way these things react through hydrolysis and so on, uh, to be honest with you, it seems to me sort of almost, uh, you know, a work of genius to, to be able to get to that kind of uh, detail from just evidence that doesn't have uh, a structural component. On the other hand, keep in mind that it, the Information on the molecular weight just begins to come available uh, when when Levine passes away. So 
he wasn't really talking about polymers because other people were sort of battling it out, right? Uh, Studingers and others about whether you had what we now call polymers or you actually had colloids, which were basically a bunch of monomers together. We now know that you can have both at the same time. So that's not like one or the other. But uh, toward the end of his life, evidence on large molecular waste started to come in and he didn't have any problem extending this tetranucleotide into a much larger polymer that was going to accommodate that. So it doesn't seem to me that he was wedded very much to to the, you know, so just the tetranucleotide as, as a claim that that's the way things were, but just the, uh, the best he could come up with based on the chemical evidence that he had. And as I said, the 1935 structure, essentially just a single strand is pretty much... Uh, um, the you know correct i don't know what evidence he could have had to basically show him that what he was proposing was incorrect so i you know i i i will not call it a mistake great i want to back up a little bit some of the things you've said all of you sort of beg some questions and we need to back up first of all uh, could one or all of you offer some background into levine's education and training how did it develop what one author uh, about the DNA story has called, and I quote, a virus-like passion for the fantastic nucleic acids? So evidently he thought nucleic acids were fantastic. Could one of you please elaborate on that? Well, what I can say is that he had a very privileged education. We know that in the Russian Empire, Jews were not allowed to live except in the Pale of the Settlement, which corresponds to current-day Belarus and Ukraine. And uh, to go to the Imperial milit- uh, Military Academy in Leningrad was not the average <laughs> trajectory for people of Jewish background. Somebody in his family must have been of some great importance to be allowed that type of education. His teacher in chemistry was the most famous chemist in Russia at the time, Alexander Borodin, and he developed first a passion for chemistry, and now whether nucleic acids were, they seem to be an addition from his time in Kossel's lab, because he worked on lipids, and he worked on proteins, and he worked on almost every chemical compound, but Hunter says this quite nicely, that he paid attention to the fact that uh, nucleic acids together with, in the form of nucleoproteins uh, are always involved in some key biological processes like uh, generation, uh, regeneration, which were of interest at the time. So he was not totally unaware of the biological importance, but... What seems to be a puzzle is that he did not seem to maintain a contact with people who are working on cell chemistry and would have come to DNA's biological role by other routes, especially since someone like Avery was in the same place. Hunter says that in the last 23 years of his life, he didn't, he looked at nucleic acids as a chemical challenge, not as a biochemical or biological. Fair enough. I mean, he was a chemist, a very uh, great chemist, very sophisticated, and you cannot solve biological problems with chemical tools. 
But the, this is uh, what I find puzzling is that uh, despite being situated at the very center of the American um, biological and chemical world, he didn't hear or uh, there was nothing to hear, there, by the way, because biologists were not zooming on DNA's role. Everybody thought it was midwife for proteins. So he didn't miss anything. Biologists, nobody was saying that DNA was was alone of importance. So to blame him, it's again bizarre, uh, exceedingly so. I suppose, though, I mean, he was the world leader in nucleic acid so so you know people are going to follow his his opinion and when he makes comments about about nucleic acids carrying no individuality or specific uh, specificity and that they could not determine species species specificity or be the carriers of mendelian characters you know it he's you know he's saying that and 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 the rest of the field's going to follow um, so, so I think whilst we can't blame him for for a te- this, this tetranucleotide hypothesis that everybody frequently does blame him, you know, blame him for. I think I think he does have to take some, uh, you know, element of the blame for holding up DNA research so long by simply, you know, dismissing the idea. But nobody forces other people to, to to challenge. If there were other major labs in Germany and in other countries that could have uh, challenged, if anybody thought that nucleic acids were really important, as it happened indeed in the late forties and early fifties, people realized that these are not the midwives. They are important in their own right, and they did what was done to give them the standing. Nobody thought about it, and uh, they uh, they were not blocked by Levine. They were blocked by their own uh, uh, zeitgeist to which they subscribed. Well, well, I mean, but he was part of that zeitgeist, wasn't he? He was a driver for it. Yes, of course. No, if if possible, just to say a little bit more about the, the educational track, right? So he... He came to the U.S. when he was 22 years old. He had already gone through through his medical training, but he went back to to his medical studies in Russia. And after finishing, he came to to the U.S. and and found uh, started to actually practice medicine while studying chemistry at Columbia. And uh, he found a, a job in, in in a pathology lab for in the state of New York, and that. Uh, I think is is where he first encounters uh, nucleic acids, and then he basically uh, gets tuberculosis, and like Walker Percy, spends uh, four years sort of going back and forth, and he seems to have changed his his, uh, his life in sense of direction because it's through that connection with tuberculosis that he uh, during this period he goes back to Europe and works in the labs that have been mentioned, including Fisher, which is, of course, central to his sugar work. And then when he comes back to the States, uh, goes back to uh, uh, Saranac, I think is the name, which is uh, a place where you know people get could recover, but there was a lab associated with it. And it is from there then that he goes to Rockefeller you know, in 1905, and I think in 1907 then gets... Uh, appointed as the chief of the chemical division, and he spends the rest of his life there. Right. 
So how did he get interested? In, where did he first get into nucleic acids? Could anybody answer that question? Yeah, I think Hunter makes a, a reference to that, that he was in, in the pathology lab that he first uh, saw them. Uh, uh, started to work with them. And when did he work with Russell? The visit, like uh, Neil just said, the visit in Russell's lab uh, must have been there something that attracted his attention because another thing that could be, he was uh, what used to be called a cultivated scientist as opposed to a mere technocrat or uh, robot or whatever. He was very, uh, by cultivated, I mean that uh, uh, he knew several languages, he read literature, uh, theater, stuff like that. So he must have read around and uh, something must have captured his uh, his interest because Hunter says very clearly that uh, it was his encounter with nucleic acids in connection with regeneration, biological regeneration, that this is a biological riddle of long standing, uh, why certain organs regenerate and others don't. And uh, to solve such a problem would have been a very big deal. So he had a motivation that was biological, but the tools that were required, uh, the chemical detour was very long, and apparently he never had the time to go beyond it, or the opportunity. If I could say a a few words about Mark's point on on how influential he was in terms of, you know, sort of keeping people away from nucleic acids. It might have been, you know, the issue of, of, of the separation of proteins from nucleic acid so that one could isolate what is it that's doing the job, right? What's a huge, complicated problem? And my sense is, even though this might be an entire different program, my sense was that the vast majority of people within the biological community from which Levine was probably a little far removed, to be honest, were of the impression that proteins were the carriers of what later on becomes known as the transforming principle, right? And and you can see people years after the structure of DNA was revealed, still talking about the fact that we're not sure whether we got this stuff clean enough so that we can make that claim. And so the, you know, part of the, there's a sense in which the, when we talk about histories, of course, the fact that you figure why, what's Levine spending 30 years on or, you know, what's Avery spending 30 years to figure out is that these processes that requires for you to actually clean these molecules are basically what takes years from day to day, the work of the professors and the graduate students mostly, Right. And it's something that it basically tends to disappear in the background as we talk about this sort of theoretical stuff that shows up in the papers, right? Most of these things don't show up in the paper with the level of detail that they merit because you probably have two PhDs on cleaning up a molecule, you know? <laughs> and that's a really interesting point you're saying about the papers not having the level of detail because, I mean, that's actually one thing he was notorious for, wasn't it? Just not including enough detail in his papers you know they you look at so many of them and they they describe some of the procedures as being carried out in the usual way 
you know, which is the sort of thing that I'd haul my students over the coals for writing uh, writing up a method in, in using terminology like that. So, and I think, again, um, the review written by Hunter um, describes how he published a series of papers going from 1 to 11, um, all with the same titles, you know, but just numbered 1 to 11, but he missed out 9 and 10. Um, you know, so he clearly sometimes didn't have quite the attention to some detail that we would really prefer these days, certainly. But uh, what Pedro said, and, and it's very important, uh, and this gives us, or at least it gives me a new angle on Levine. Everybody believed that in nuclear proteins, which were uh, associated with heredity in one form or another, proteins were the main players. Everybody believed that. Now, to be a Levine or an Avery means to be unusual because you deviate here from the consensus that proteins are important, which means that he was rebel of some sort. And you go and work on something that everybody thinks it's less important. Not everybody does it. Most people would go, uh, what was the joke in the lab? Go find yourself a good protein, which means easy to crystallize, <laughs> to, get a, to get some uh, diffraction lights. Uh, this is what people were told to do, uh, not to look uh, even in the Cambridge lab. Uh, you know, these are the... So if we look from this angle... It's possible that Levin thought that he was going to do something that nobody gambles on. Everybody gambled on proteins. To do nucleic acids is really um, a dissident position, uh, intellectually and technically. And uh, We haven't said it yet, but he was technically very astute, and every innovation that was available in structural chemistry be sure he applied it to the subject. Yeah, and you know, it's it, since we all now work with molecules of biological importance, is it, it's sort of difficult to imagine the uh, attitude of chemists to biological molecules at the time, right? Because no serious chemist would work with these things which are essentially impossible to isolate in a way that you can do any decent chemistry on. So if one looks at, at, at the controversy between polymers and colloids and so on, basically what Stoutinger gets told over and over again is, look, if you want to do any serious chemistry, forget all these big molecules because you cannot get them in a state where you can do any chemistry that will tell you anything, right? We now look back that, okay, you know, without polymers, what is there to do? But at the time, uh, if you needed to concentrate on a small molecules so that you could do your chemistry and claim that you knew what you were working with. A quick interjection question here, please. Uh, Pedro, could you just uh, give, for the sake of our audience who may not be quite up to date on all the names, Stadinger, what was his full name and what was he best known for? So Hermann Stadinger was a, a German chemist that eventually won a long-running controversy about the nature of large molecules, macromolecules, where they... Sorry, and this was in the early, uh, 20th century or late 19th century? 
Yes, yes. This is at the beginning of the 20th century. Stadinger got a Nobel Prize for it in, I think, uh, yes, the 1940s and so on. 52. So Stadinger is still alive when, you know, the polymer industry begins to take off um, and is now, of course, you know, the at the time, of course, the structure of plastics and rubbers and, you know, micromolecules of all kinds was in, in dispute. And basically the argument was, are these sort of agglomerations of very small units or were they sort of continuous strings? Within the conversation that we're having, we're talking about tetranucleotides, right? Okay, so is do you have this repeating itself in a linear chain that forms a large molecules, or do you have very small components, which actually Castle was, I don't remember the German term for it, but it's basically the building blocks hypothesis, if you will, do you have these very small parts agglomerating themselves? And that's why it gives you the impression that that they are much larger molecules. And of course, the history of physical chemistry has a period at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, which is essentially dominated by the chemistry of colloids where people thought, that they were always talking about this conglomeration of small molecules, when in fact some of them were basically um, sort of a linear re- repetitive string, so what we now call monomers, right? Absolutely. Thank you so much. Uh, two other th- points I wish to clarify. One, I'd just like to point out to the reader that the hunter that is referred to is a scientist who's written historical uh, who's done historical work on the history of dna and has written a paper that is in our further resources list about phoebus levine specifically and this tetranucleotide hypothesis the second clarification before i get to that mark you have something to say um i was just going to say i'm i'm aware we still haven't really described what chemistry levine did um, we've talked about what a great uh, great um, contributions he's made, but of course you know what what did he do? And um, I mean, if you don't mind, I, I, I'll go first with that. Essentially, you know, he he uh, identified the sugars involved in the, the ribose in the in and um, and eventually deoxyribose in uh, in DNA. He um, he worked out the the way that the the phosphates, the sugars, the bases were all linked together, and he coined the term the nucleotide. So, so these these are and these are the fundamental building blocks of DNA. And and this tetranucleotide hypothesis that we we mentioned and that we are mentioning is is essentially comes about because um, the amount of these the four bases in DNA A, T, G, and C is certainly in the organisms he was looking at them in were more or less equal as at least as far as his 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 uh, analytical techniques could tell therefore it was reasonable to assume that the basic building block was formed from these four nucleotides being joined together to form some sort of monomer that might be then repeated on a larger scale so um um and and We've talked about how long he worked in this field for, you know, the whole of his life for years and years. And and I suppose to our mind now, looking back, you think, well, it took somebody that long to uh, 
to to work up this the, to find these solutions but but it was incredibly challenging as as pedro said you know purifying the amounts of dna finding the right conditions to um to break up these components hydrolyze these various components and then and then analyze them and um and i think i mean maybe what one of my other the other guests can can shed some light on this but there's this wonderful description in in uh, gareth williams book about unraveling the double helix where he describes how how one of the breakthroughs was finding the right conditions to break down thymus dna yeah um, dna from thymus and and he described using an incubator that was basically a dog's intestine a living dog's intestine um, and and I mean I, the, 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 I I haven't found any description of it elsewhere. But so maybe maybe one of my maybe um, somebody else could shed some shed some light on that. Uh, I just wanted to ask you to clarify one thing, please. We talked about the fact that A, T, G, and C, the bases, uh, in a previous episode, that Kossel is who named them, and now you mentioned that yeah. Levine names the nucleotides. Now, oftentimes. I think as a shorthand, people think of AT and G and C, AT, G and C um, to be uh, the nucleotides themselves. Could you clarify the difference or the exact relationship between AT, G and C and the nucleotides? Are they part of one another or how does it all fit together? Okay, yeah. So, so a, a nucleotide is comprised of the phosphates and the sugar. Uh, forms the backbone of the of the DNA, and the variable part then, the bit that defines whether it's A, T, G, and C, is the base. So you've got the four different bases in D- DNA, and then and each of those, each nucleotide then has the same phosphate, same sugar, and a different uh, base. And the difference then is of course between RNA and DNA is also in the sugar. So in in RNA you've got a, a, a ribose sugar, and then in, you've got um, you've got the A, G, C, and U for uracil instead of um, thymine for um, for the T. So, so summary, yeah, it's the base changes, the sugar and the um, and the and the phosphate is, stays the same in in the nucleic acid that you're interested in. And it was Levine that put all of this together, these different pieces of the puzzle, and gave the name nucleotide. Yeah, that, that is correct. The bases are just one or two rings, depending whether they are a purine or a pyrimidine. And, uh, you know, the latter have one ring, the former have two rings. And there are two bases with two rings and two bases with one ring. And therefore, the number of hydrogen bridges are different in, uh, but uh, these are just nitrogenous bases. They're not, nucleotide requires, like Mark said, three components. And he clarified how the bases are on which C of the um, sugar they are connected, how they are connected. This is a very big, they gave the Nobel Prize to Alexander Todd for clarifying where the connection is on the sugar, which is a three and five. But this is essential. Most of this work was done by uh, Levin's lab and by by somebody in um, Todd's lab. And uh, it's not the only time when the wrong people get the Nobel Prize. 
Yeah, I mean, and, and you can look back through the papers and you see this evolution of of, of Levine's ideas about how how the bases are connected to the sugars and the phosphates. You know, there's 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 some really crazy ideas actually in there. But it, but you know, but that's okay. Um, well, crazy from our point of view now. Um, that that's okay. But you know, he, he you see this evolution of him of him figuring out what the sugars are then. And then coming up with different hypotheses for how the the sugars and the phosphates and the bases are all linked together. And of course, the other big thing that was going on at the time is was whether whether actually the sugar was the same um, in plants and animals. So so um, so Levine identified um, the five membered ring, the five ribo sugar ring in from from yeast. But and but his his great um, rival, and they had a wonderfully combative relationship, Walter Jones, thought that the uh, that from animals, it was a six membered ring. And and uh, and it took something like 15 years for Levine to eventually show that it was it was a five membered ring of ribose in, in all the nucleic acids. And that's where he's Again, I came across this description of him finally finding the correct way to break down the thymus DNA in using, you say, a live dog intestine to do so. And again, back to that, because I'm, I'm fascinated by that because I couldn't find anything else about it. So I'd love to know whether anybody else has come across any any descriptions of that as well. Pedro, you add something on this? Just to add that, uh, just for the benefit of the listeners, part of the difficulty here is that... Once we think that we have the base, the sugar, and the phosphate, we essentially have the problem solved. But the number of ways in which these things can be bonded, to say nothing of how they can have three-dimensional structure, is an incredibly difficult problem. So the road from identifying the chemical structure of the three components to a proposal that actually has a correct ordering of them is a huge step, right? Because just sugar chemistry by itself, it's incredibly complex because sugars are molecules that have all kinds of different structure, pyranos, furanos, all kinds of uh, uh, different arrangements. Yes, you are working with chemicals that by themselves are really difficult to characterize and so to come up with how they are bonded to each other is a major challenge even after one knows the molecular formula for it. Okay, thank you. I did want to go back and ask, we did get into a little bit of what exactly the tetranucleotide hypothesis or theory was. I'll repeat that. It might be, because we've talked a lot about it, it might be worth clarifying it a little bit for our audience. When mentioned in texts by others, it simply describes the idea that nucleic acids exist as represent repeating groups of four nucleotides. And this was ident- reinforced by a 1909 publication by Levine. Now, you all have already made it abundantly clear what a complex task and how long it took Levine uh, to work through all the nucleic acids. Could you comment on what, in your opinion, has caused this diagram and the statements about the tetranucleotide hypothesis to be misunderstood and to be judged so harshly in history, fairly or unfairly? I I think that 
All the harsh judgment goes back primarily to Bentley Glass, who was a who was a member of the genetics establishment. I don't think he's known as a great geneticist, but he held very important positions in uh, genetical societies and journals, and he felt Bentley Glass. Yeah, when? Which period? I would say between uh, the 1940 and 60, but probably more than, uh, maybe after, after 62, but he was in the transition period that we talk about in the 40s. And he felt that he was the establishment in a way. And uh, what happened is DNA uh, becoming alone, the genetic material, was very embarrassing, uh, not necessarily to chemists, because they never professed to study heredity, but to biologists. So uh, people in certain cultural traditions, they know what to do best, is to blame someone else, not from the... Uh, group and uh, he came with this term scientific catastrophe and the, uh, this is totally absurd he was no historian he did not study what Levin did he had no clue he was just looking for an easy scapegoat what is interesting uh, is not so much why Bentley Glass did it because I can see this very easily but why uh, more intelligent people uh, were tending to repeat it in passing. Nobody analyzed, uh, because once you start to look at Levin, you realize that all the statements are ambiguous. It's not, uh, it's not easy to pin down. So I assume, as a genetic establishment per se, uh, was looking really to save his skin. And uh, the best way usually is to find somebody else to blame. And this is what happened here. I don't, I don't see any other uh, uh, more, more <laughs> interesting uh, way to, uh, to solve this. So in other words, you're saying that the tetranucleus type just became a scapegoat to blame the delay for accepting DNA as the genetic molecule. But it was not a cause of delay. Everybody knew that nucleic acids are part of nucleoproteins, and this is a component that is involved in heredity, in uh, cytogenetics, whatever, chromosomes, whatever you have. But nobody thought that this is the main component or the only component. And there was the block, not what happened in chemistry. This is, uh, uh, or what was the structure? These people uh, didn't know the structure even if you bang a nucleotide on, on their head. As it is, uh, because it's complicated uh, to, to show that the linkage uh, of the backbone is only at carbon 3 and 5 of, of the Pentagon. It's very hard to do that. This is why Todd got the Nobel Prize. That came much later. That came later than Levine. But thank you. I'd like to back up and ask Mark uh, and Pedro whether you have anything to add to what Panina said about the notoriety of the tetranucleotide hypothesis. Uh, yeah, in addition to what Panina said, of course, you know, that there is a, a tendency, not necessarily among scholars, but in terms of the way that... Stories about the history of science are 
done in the press and sometimes, to be honest, with people that ought to know better, like Bentley Glass, right? Which tends to minimize the achievements of other people and to turn them into, how should I put it, uh, to, to, to decrease the importance or to uh, blame uh, some scientific development having delayed something else. These kinds of things can only be done looking backwards. And for some reason, there is part of the community that comments on science that seems to be interested in painting a picture that tends to uh, sort of minimize the achievement that people have come before. Not only does it apply to people, sometimes it applies to theories, sometimes it's oversimplifications about the difficulty of a particular development at a given time. I can favorite two examples are phlogiston, for example. So phlogiston was supposed to be this joke, but a joke that lasted for 130 years and nobody seemed to get it. Any hypothesis that suppose that for 130 years everybody was dumber than you is probably wrong. So obviously people were looking at something that looked like it was convincing, and for us, it's very easy. And the way this story is told is that here come Le Boisier and phlogiston goes out the window. But when you look at the details, you see phlogiston sort of hanging on years and years after Le Boisier. So the history of science shows you all the time, over and over again, that whenever you have something that's supposed to be a crucial experiment, is normally a crucial experiment that only becomes crucial in retrospect because at the time it was simply a development. And of course, the evidence begins to sort of come together into a picture. And the word discovery is sometimes uh, sort of makes that worse because a scientific discovery is not like discovering you have a flat tire. A scientific discovery is a process that sometimes takes years and years and years. The history of science is complicated and the tendency to sort of be simplistic about what is going on here is just not helpful. And it tends to give people the impression that science is a very different endeavor from what it is. Responsible for the fact that those of us that are scientists are supposed to be some kind of different species, you know. I think I think that's a great point, actually. I think it's something that we should... Um, we as as scientists, science communicators, you know, science historians should make it really spend more time making it clear that that uh, research in science is often often goes up uh, blind alleys. There's a great um, quote: "Research is the process of going up alleys to see if they are blind." It was uh, first expressed by the zoologist Marston Bates. Um, and 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 I think that's that describes it perfectly, isn't it? You've got to explore. You're mapping out the possibility landscape, and sometimes that's going to involve going down blind alleys. And those blind alleys can be really long. In this case, where where DNA was was put aside as a, as a relatively unimportant molecule for such a, such a long time. Um, but but that's how that's how science works. And go, go back to actually Pedro's comment about about phlogistone. Actually, I, I just could say that I you know I wasn't aware that it was a it was a joke, but it reminds me of um, maybe that was the first example of Poe's law. I don't know if you've come across that. Poe's law is the is the adage that in the internet culture, anything without any. Um, saying that without a clear indication of the author's intent, any parody or extreme view can be mistaken by some readers as a sincere expression of um, of, of 
of uh, of their views. So you know, um, I think maybe the phlogiston was the first example of that, well before the internet age, anyway, as well. But anyway, I digress. <laughs> I mean, thank you all very much. I think Pedro's point uh, that Mark reinforced about the blind alleys in science and that science can take a long time and how historians of science need to pay attention to this is a very great point at which to end this very rousing conversation for which I'd like to thank all three of you uh, for participating. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks. It was great to be here.